another episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast, proudly presented by Masters in Motion. This week is Elliot Rausch week. Um, this is the second time that Elliot is on the podcast. The first time he was one of the original five that we uh, first launched with back in 2015. And over the years, I think that Elliot's podcast is something that has had staying power. Um, a lot of people will tend to pull me aside and tell me that if uh, out of all the episodes that they might listen to more than once, Elliot's is always mentioned like that. People um, continually refer back to it just for um, the inspiration that it is. And that's honestly, you know, the way Elliot is. I, I think that what's nice, just like Ryan's, this is the second time that we've done um, a repeat guest. And what's nice about that is that we don't have to go through the their, their history. We, we, we did that in the last one. And so that kind of opens things up. And so, you know, by all means, if you want to hear about Elliot's backstory and how he got started, um, episode five is uh, definitely uh, where you can go to get that information and story. Um, coming into this, you know, I did first meet Elliot back at uh, Masters in Motion years ago, maybe in 2014. And um, he's the type of person that is just this ball of energy and emotion and I and it it rubs off onto everything he touches he's just he's just a force you know you 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 feel the man in the room and you certainly feel him in his work he's a commercial director currently at stink and his work is just unbelievable and truly unique and you can kind of always tell when it's an Elliot Roush um, film and it's because it's just dripping with with emotion and sensitivity and it is of no surprise then that like when, when you listen to him speak you're like well of course this is the person that would make content like that um he's just so um close to his you know his feelings his his awareness his understanding he's a very he has a very proactive mind nothing happens by accident and he's he's always thinking about something and you know, it's always a joy to hang out with Elliot because, you know, I could promise you, you know, we had already been speaking for two hours when we started recording and then we hung out for, for more. He, he's, he's the type that it's, 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 a never light, it's never a light conversation. It's always super meaningful. And so we use this uh, hour as an opportunity to talk about how things have been for him in, in the last four years since, since the last time we had a recording, similar to, to Ryan's and kind of like seeing how that... Um, how that arc had continued since the last time we spoke. And so that was really interesting. And just hearing about how things are for him now. You know, when we spoke last, he didn't have two kids. And now he does. And how that has uh, really impacted him. And, and I think, and I mentioned it in there, I, I think I think it's been for the better. Um, you know, of course you would hope so. And I, and I think it's true. Um, he seems, he seems uh, like he's in a really good place. And it was just, it's always a joy to talk to him, and, and this time was like no other. So, as always, talking to Elliot is a, uh, is a special experience, and I am, um, I'm just thrilled about this, about this, uh, this, this episode. So, uh, like I said, we are presented by Masters in Motion, which is where you can meet people like Elliot. It is a three-day filmmaking conference in Austin, Texas. ASC cinematographers, ACE editors, big-time production designers, everybody comes down, and it's at the Alamo Draft House, which is a great place to hear speakers and guest lectures, but then and also, we hang out afterwards. We go out for a beer. You can talk to these. You can talk to everyone that that comes in that way, and uh, it's what really sets it apart and makes it special. So, this is Elliot Roush Week on the Pod. Thanks for being here. So. Um, one of the uh, things that I was doing in prep for this was listening to our last conversation, which uh, a lot of people have come up to me and they're like, not only is that their favorite one, but that they've like, I've listened to it multiple, multiple really? times. Yeah, like whenever they need some sort of kick in the ass or some sort of inspiration or people really keep going back. It's something, it's, it's an episode that people go back to which I find really interesting. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, and that was about four years ago. Right. And how would you describe the, the road that you've been on in those four years? Can't you start with a more simple question then? That's like, uh, you can't pull the veil back that quickly. <laughs> you gotta start small. Like feed me along like a, with like a carrot stick or something. That's what, that's what the past hour has been. <laughs> 
uh, off off the air. You know, you know, you know. I I think the it's it's really um, people always ask you how you do. How are you doing? Yeah. How's it going? Yeah. My wife's taught me how to just answer that really simply and just say good, <laughs> you know, because uh, if you really want to know how I'm doing, it's a complicated thing. Sure. You know, and if you really want to know how the last four years has been, it's a complicated thing. I don't know how to summarize it or, you know, package it uh, nicely, but it's. Well, let's talk about it, yeah. I think, in the in a practical in a practical sense, because I, what what year did you um, end up going to stink? It would have been, I think. I believe about five years ago, maybe four and a half years ago, five years ago. I think that when we were speaking, you hadn't gone there yet. Ah, so then it was three, probably about, about around four years ago then. Yeah. I must might, have just signed with Stink after that. It too. might have happened right after we sat down. Yeah. So what was that? Um, let's, let's, let's go back to that then. What was that transition like for you? Um, you know, what level of excitement, but were there maybe potentially nerves as well? And what, what were you hoping for at the time that you made that, made that move? Well, you know, I, I think at the time I was um, I was in conversation with three or four production companies, mm -hmm. and it was really hard to discern who to shackle up with. You know, I had had a long time at uh, Uber Content, which is now, I believe, Sanctuary, um, and it would have been a five-year relationship with an EP who it was a dear friend and it was it was hard to you know trust my another three years or you know four years with it with a company that I was unfamiliar with and yeah um I ended up choosing stink because funny enough uh my brother had given me the advice who's he's a producer in in our uh in our circle and he said you just have to find someone that really believes in you that mm. like really gets behind your work yeah you know that like isn't just signing you but you can feel it when they're sitting across from you they're gonna go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with whoever whenever yeah to make it work for you really champion yeah and what, what was it about them that made you think that that was how it was feeling it was just aggressive it was like mm. they knew the work thoroughly you know Jeff Barron had just come from anonymous content he was so sincere and complimentary and knew the work inside and out. Daniel Bergman, who owns Stink, you know, kept harassing me and <laughs> just, you know, finding me wherever I was around the world to come and do lunches and coffees. And, you, you know, you could feel that compulsion to really, like, support me as a director. And um, Wow. How long was that courtship? It was, it was probably six months, maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you really held out. I did. Yeah, what did. was the thought process at the time to do that? Because I think, you know, um, it's, a, it's a tricky thing signing with a production company. It mm -hmm. really is. I mean, I, I learned a lot in the five years I was with Uber content, things I wish I had, I had known when I was younger. But I was, I, I think I was naive going, <laughs> going into that relationship when I was young. And I, I didn't realize there were all these nuances and, you know details to that that marriage what do you what are those things some of those things that you think you learned <laughs> how to negotiate a contract yeah yeah the stuff <laughs> I, that isn't the art you know the stuff that isn't the art the you know the um how to have like an you know a contract attorney lawyer look at your contract before you sign a contract i mean just real basic uh basic stuff you know how yeah. to how to create clear boundaries and how to create a clear understanding of articulating your own expectations, mm -hmm. you know, and having the production company articulate their expectations and, you know, all that stuff that you kind of want to do before you get married or you start uh, moving in with someone, you know, you, you want to find a way to understand those details, you know? Yeah. And so you felt like you, you were in a better position. Yeah. And when, um, when you did move over, what what was uh, perhaps different when you were first starting out there? I think it was all pretty much the same. Yeah, it you know it ends up being the same, but I think Stink had just a lot of quality um, 
like between Jeff Barron and and Nick, who are over there at the U.S. office, Daniel Bergman, there was just a. I think not only did they have integrity and um, a real good head on their shoulders, uh, character, you know, like they spoke truthfully about most things. Yeah. But I also think they had really good taste, you know, and um, and they they gave me feedback about the work, and they were beginning to help me understand maybe where you know, where I should go with some things. And it, it was really respectable, you know, mm -hmm. it was, uh, it, it was fruitful because I was learning from it, you know? Yeah. In terms of your approach to the work, um, do you feel like you're able to have an idea of what might have been, what has been evolving and how you do it over the last couple of years? Anything that's been improving or things that you kind of like know in a more intentional way have been shifting? Yeah, I mean, I think the last, if you want to talk about the most massive uh, transformation in the last four years is I think all the the tropes and the tricks and the the ways in which I, I did uh, my work wore thin. You know, it was almost like somewhere nine, ten years ago when everything exploded for me. I had been visited by the muse, you know, it was like providential. I, I don't know how it happened. And then like, I developed some tricks to like, keep that working, you know, and convince people that like, I was the muse. Right. And you know, I could make things happen. Yeah. And then like, that wore thin. And, um, and so the last four years has has been almost an exploration of anonymity, you know, in anonymity, like, you know, behind closed doors and restraining uh, myself from just continuing down a trajectory that I had formed and created so that I can I can grow appropriately. You know? You're like trying to be a bit more proactive in where you were headed versus just writing what, whatever was coming your way. Exactly. You know, I could, I could feel that like at least how I was being pigeonholed or the work I was getting or the way I was, you know, the way I was um, being affirmed by culture, by my peers it wasn't necessarily aligned with like what I knew to be true about myself. And so what was that disconnect? Well, the, you know, the disconnect was around the time, you know, I think when I, when I became successful or popular, it was, uh, you know, it was the kind of the buzzword of authenticity, Yeah. you know, like everything was authentic and uh, your work's authentic and you, you care about the poor and the marginalized and, you know, and, things that are authentic. And I kind of heard that and I heard the buzz language, you know, the, the, the vernacular at the time that was being used, I thought, Ooh, this is dangerous because now like Pepsi's talking that way. <laughs> you know? yeah, you're you're like, commoditizing authenticity, which seems like, uh, not, it's, it's you know, diametrically opposed. You, you know, you know, when like Ikea and, and uh, Coca-Cola are like lighting basketballs on fire and, you know, doing these kind of like hipster anthems. And yeah, you know that like postmodernism, revolution, deteriorating everything, breaking down stereotype kind of artful expression is like at its end, you know? Yeah. And like, I think I was smart enough at the time four years ago to see that like that buzzy, that buzzword, that authenticity buzzword was like now that it was in the mouths of large corporations, mm -hmm. like I was screwed, you know, because. Um, well, uh, some people might look at that and be like, especially if that's your bag, yeah. they might think the exact opposite about being screwed. They might think like this is. Here's the opportunity to capitalize. Yeah. Right. So why, why are you thinking in a totally different way than that? Because I, I think, that, you know, it, I was never seeking authenticity in my work. I was never seeking you know, some, that was a result. It was a result of just being like human and being honest and being a complete idiot and experimenting and trying things. And sometimes, you know, like failing forward. And, uh, when those things struck, you know, cultural relevance, it was frightening. Cause it's like, well, that was an accident. Mm -hmm. That was just, that was just me trying to explore my own demons and it just popped out the other side. And so like, yeah, you know, if you caught lightning in a bottle and they're like, great, can you do that for these shoes? Yeah. And, I, and again, I mean, this is the way you have to understand, or at least I wish I understood 
that the, in the West we we commodify all things. Like the the commodification of art has been, as as you know, you know, in your podcast, it's just what happens. Yeah. You know, it's like you take something that is so absolutely mysterious and something that we cannot possess our own and you throw it into a bottle and you try to replicate it so that like you can 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 continue to make money from it and this has been the way of art um for as long as it's existed you know yeah. and so i guess for for those of us that some sometimes come to terms with that and realize it's not coming from us all the time you know and suddenly culture is now commoditizing it it's a dangerous landscape to play in because at some point if you're entrenched in that and and you are monetizing that there's also an, a massive end and cliff to that right like all musicians know that like there's a, there's an there's a moment when culture goes oh that's not cool anymore yeah and on to the next thing right so like if you're saturated in culture that way popular culture yeah there's an end you know within arm's reach there's an end in sight so, so when so when main brands are starting to throw on authentic that's a red flag like we are coming close to the to the cliff yeah and for me i just want to continue to do this for as long as i live i don't care about like po popularity and success i just want to continue to be able to like explore life through this vein i don't i don't want to become so celebrated or like to have my career so or like to have my greatness so concretized in a bottle that like suddenly you know i'm sitting you know in my ivory tower trying to protect this thing that like isn't working anymore and it gets messy and i have to like opt out and like take my own life or you know or pretend that i'm relevant again or you know play the like culture game yeah i just want to be able to like you know, well, it's interesting in that you're primarily a commercial director, right? And that literal thing of making commercials for for sale of 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 things, right? Which is different than if you were primarily a narrative director. That's right. And that is so fat. I think it's probably the most fascinating thing for me about you, right? Because every time that we have personal conversations. Um, there's a justifiable railing against certain um, ideologies of the capitalistic West, but then you're a commercial director. For and, sure. And, and somehow it still makes sense to me, right. but it, it's, it is so per, it's per, perplexing, it's interesting. Like why do you operate in this landscape if, you, if your views on it are as such? Because I also believe in like making money and fundraising my own projects. And I believe yeah. in working hard and paying a mortgage and raising my family appropriately. Yeah. And so I have to go to work yeah. every day like my dad did and like his father did. And so mm. when I'm um, in the space of advertising or making commercials, I, I do that with everything I have in me mm -hmm. because I'm showing up for a job, you know? And sometimes like that realm produces accolades and produces, you know, um, this other stuff, Yeah, you know, that like kind of gets into my head about where I should be going with my own like work, my own personal work. Mm -hmm. But I've always had underneath or, you know, behind closed doors or off to the side, this other stuff going on. You know, I wish, I wish I had, I have a, I, have, I, I, I wish, I could have had a feature under my belt by this time, right. you know, right. um, the screenplays that I've written, the projects I've been attached to haven't come to fruition. And mm -hmm. like the documentary that I started shooting last year where I was 20, 30% into production, you know, suddenly collapsed because, you know, the, the, the sort of like main thesis was debunked by like one simple experience that I had and I had to like let go of it. So like, oh really? there's this other world that for me is more true or that exists outside of the commercial making or outside of like the, the cultural game that is like more, not, not necessarily more real for me, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a large part of my life. Yeah. It just happens that 
I think I've been so lucky to have commercial success. Like yeah. I've been lucky that in my job place where I'm making my money, people recognize me for doing great things. Like that's a total honor. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not perplexed about having to like show up and make money and like do work. And mm -hmm. sometimes like that realm, you know, there's a year that like my work sucks and you know, I'm yeah. taking jobs that are, a little strange and you know a little lousy sometimes and it's it's a complicated thing but i've never i since i started this i've never considered the commercial realm to be i've never waited for that to be like my place of like ultimate fulfillment you know right well because i feel like i mean it's it's interesting to hear you describe it now because when i first met you which might have been maybe six years ago or something now that there was something about it seemed like there was a real frustration in that there was angst and tension because of that um strange relationship of course and what has changed where i think that you're you're compartmentalizing it in, in, a, in a healthy way made perhaps better yeah or do you agree that that's been an evolution in, in your own mind or am i just understanding it differently now no i think i think i had to eventually as, as I was in my own therapy, my own adult life, having two kids, a wife, a mortgage, like I had to come to terms with the fact that like everyone has to work. Yeah. And um, I had to come to terms with like, and again, I, I don't want to separate this to make it sound like commercial making is like beneath no. any anything, but... I got really clear that it's a large corporation mm -hmm. that is looking to sell their product through an idea that is layered in, you know, agendas and manipulation and untruths. Mm. Sometimes there's a little bit of truth, but most of the time there's many untruths. And at the end of the day, they're going to have ultimate control over it because they've hired me as a director, right? And so I had to get clear on that so that I could go in, back into that realm and understand like what I was servicing, that it wasn't just about me stealing away this like great piece of art, you know, to, to ensure that I was remaining relevant and putting my best foot forward. And I had to understand the negotiated terms, right? Yeah. And I had to like see that clearly so I wasn't always struck when I wasn't struck down when suddenly some of that would emerge. Yeah. You know, I was like, ah, yes, this is the negotiated deal here. No one speaks about it this way, but it's the negotiated terms. Yeah. And um, I think when I got clarity around that, there was just more freedom, you know, to show up, like I said, to show up and do a great job and to be of maximum service with all of the tools I have in on my belt, right. along with collaborators and everything I can put forth to, you know, to help a brand. But, um, well, there, yeah, I was, I wasn't as tortured because suddenly it became, it was clearer, you know? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting term to use torture because it, yeah, I would agree that it could, it, in talking with you at times, it could have felt that way where it doesn't now. And that's a really positive thing. Um, but it, so now that it's not that, um, what elements of it are causing um, joy and what are causing frustration now that you kind of have a better grip on your relationship to it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the joy that I find now uh, having a, a three and a half year old son mm -hmm. and a one year old daughter um and a stay-at-home mother, you know, who's dedicated to the kids. I, the joy I find, I think, more is in being provider. Yeah. You know, and that's I think that's a new experience mm. um, as an artist or as a as an individual filmmaker to see that the fruit of my labor is offering a sort of peaceable state for my nuclear family. You know that that brings deep fulfillment. I think um, in the work itself, 
I think uh, in the commercial vein, in the world of working with advertising agencies and production companies and, you know, and other collaborators, I think I'm still committed to creating a great piece of art that, well, for sure, you know, that um, uh, touches people. But I think what I've found in the last four years to be even more exhilarating is, is really finding ways of communication that that more clearly define people's expectations and understanding what people are really wanting so you know? you're talking about within like the prep process i'm and just like saying as, as 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 a sociological psychological experiment you know in a realm where there's so much that is unclear and unspoken in what arena in the, Life, in, in, just... No, in the arena of, of making commercials, mm -hmm. of sitting across from someone and hearing what they want from something and being on a conference call and having them assess a treatment and being out in the, the field of making it happen, you know, with 120 people on set. Like, I'm very intrigued in the, in the way we communicate, you know, right. that, that has been a new thing that has emerged I, as, as a way to. I don't know if it's a coping mechanism to find some kind of greater substance there, but it's, I know it's created more empathy. It's created more clarity. It's created a, a way in which I can work with people. Um, I don't know, in a, in a more, I think, adult fashion, you know? Yeah. Well, I was going to say that, you know, the, um, the work itself is definitely just, it's, it's elevating whatever, we think the commercial realm can do. Sure. I mean, thinking about something that I that you released recently with the Kravitz yeah. family. I mean, that that is. How does something like that um, come about? Because I, I I had a conversation in a recent podcast with Ryan Booth where I was like, you know, the I'm amazed that when I when I see a commercial piece that really holds true to a deeper, interesting idea as a final product, I'm always amazed that it that that um, stylistic vision made it through the gauntlet from ideation all the way through post and that at no point people higher up didn't make it safer. Um, and like how that's achieved, because that's a real thing. That's really impressive to me because my biggest thing when I was talking to Ryan about it is that, and I'm interested to revisit that conversation with you, is that like sometimes a great piece like that will end and I say, how? How was that? How did that get made? And I don't mean on a technical level. I mean, how did the twenty people on the corporate side, whatever it might be, um, not make it safer out of some sort of knee-jerk preservation um, place? You know, I I have to be careful around this project specific, specifically because we can talk about it in a more general sense. Well, well, just because. If I if I if I speak it about if I speak about this project the way I want to speak about it, I'll sound like a narcissist. So I'm I'm careful not to discredit my collaborators that I had on that project. Okay. You know, but um, and I'm already sort of like leading with that confession. Okay. But um, my belief is that best idea wins. Sure. Right. So like, let's throw everything at. <laughs> at the wall let's outcreate each other and be solutions providers and whoever has the better idea let's go for it and i think on that project specifically because it was so mysterious how this thing was going to come about you know in in some of the, the sort of pre-conceptualization with the kravitz and and trying to figure out how this this kind of documentary was going to work, you know, on the island where they, they come from, I knew immediately I had to write something. I had to write specific dialogue, a script. get it down on paper, a script for everyone to look at and say, ah, this is, if we can achieve this, we're golden. Yeah. And so for me, it was devising quite a specific roadmap that everyone could sign on for, mm -hmm. you know, and it was definitely a promise within a, I think it was two days or three days of production that I was a little afraid of committing to because I knew that, you know, I could, I could absolutely fail all of them, mm -hmm. but there was enough assurance I had based on my own investigation, my own research interviews. I had listened to from the Kravitz where if the dialogue took, took a turn this way, if, if it was constructed this way, 
and you know designed this way it, it would be beautiful it'd be wonderful you know it could be honest and so surely i think everyone trusted that because they saw it and they read it and they felt it and they knew it and they thought ah yeah you know we'll get behind this and is there anyone that has something better throw throw it at the wall and it, it felt like everyone agreed that well, you know, it's always something to say, and I think the like the uh, naturally from the director, you're going to hear you know best idea wins, and and like that that's all well and good, but at a certain point, I just tend to find that you know it's, someone well, on the other side says that they believe in that, but then when the rubber meets the road and it's actually happening, that it starts to get stylistic and it starts to get it starts to have um, a definitive point of view, and that starts to become scary. See, I'm I'm a believer though, like. Again, speaking about absolutely tending to the uh, the 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 ask, you know, with all all that I have in me, you mm -hmm, know, I am mm -hmm. one hundred percent committed to giving everything that I have in post, as I saw it, where it usually often strays and it begins to become muddled because of exactly it becomes mediocre because it's it's a kind of committee oriented yes you know critique mm -hmm. and everyone needs to get their like frame in i thought and i could see it going that way i thought and we had a brilliant editor on board i thought you know what i know the cut i'm an editor yeah give me the footage for one day you know like in the midst of it give me the footage for one day i will cut you the piece i'll give it back to you i promise you there'll be enough product There'll be enough, you know, performance and story, and it will be it'll be the cut that you can work from. Mm. And they were hesitant, but sure enough, I was given the grace to do that. And you know, sure enough, like it became the cut. You know, it was like I think there were very few changes after that because it's hard. You know, it's hard. It's like you have an editor that hasn't been in on the job he's not even in collaboration with me he doesn't even know who i am right and they've chosen him out of a box of you know a-listers it's a it, things get away from a director and i think like you know being able to cut it they gave again it's such a gracious offer and then for the editor to take the cut and to go oh my gosh like I, like there it is yeah for him to acknowledge it to hit for him to acknowledge it it was such i mean it was a miracle yeah and then for the client to look at it and go Wow! Yeah, there it is. Um, it was a, it was a great victory. That's that ha that happens very seldomly. Yeah, it does very seldomly. But again, it's like it goes back to just this general philosophy. Like, I don't want to sit there and disagree with you. I don't want to get into the weeds. Like, we can negotiate this conflict, you know, the best we can. But at the end of the day, like the only way I'm going to be able to prove it to you is if you see it. Mm -hmm. You know, because language nowadays and you know it's like even treatments it's so hard because um so much is subjective nowadays you know and yeah. there's so there's so little trust there really is such little trust nowadays because we have algorithms and we have data and we have you know people because filmmaking so democratized everyone feels like you know they know a little better than the person they're collaborating with. So, you know, who's the quickest to like, to, uh, to prove their point, you know, to show something that like surprises people. I think it's, I don't know. That it's not just in the talk, but you're just actually doing it within the, phys the, the, the actual thing. Yeah. And sometimes I'm willing to take the risk of actually like hurting people's feelings and, you know, maybe like, Ruffling, ruffling feathers a little bit because I'm sort of jumping first without the parachute and you know well, that takes a, a significant amount of nuance yeah. and, and experience because that's that's a tightrope walk for sure and I and I think what I learned when I was younger is like if I just become this like service oriented yes ma'am no ma'am yes sir like whatever you want okay cool you want the camera there and I become passive right so it's like I was always passive aggressive. This is the nature of most artists, passive aggressive. I would just go, cool, you want the show? All right. You want to take you want to take it? Go ahead. I and mean, tell me where you want the camera next. Okay, great. And you want this? I, what I learned was that eventually it dissolves into something very poor. And then on the other side, even though you've become a puppet, 
and they've gotten everything they need, they, you know, they sort of jab you in the side on the other side, which is like, they stab you in the back. They're like, he, he didn't really fight for his vision and it was subpar and it was mediocre. Yeah, they like, blame you anyway. They blame you anyways, right? Yeah. So I, I learned that when I was young that, you know, just going into this kind of passive fatalistic state of like, cool, like, okay. Yeah, it's not. You win. So again, back to, back to this intrigue of negotiating conflict, this intrigue of, of negotiating communication. I find that you know, there's something there that is really, really, it's incredible, you know. Can it, can it be argued that like in the last four years, your, you know, your art has always been great and maybe the amount, like the, the art within you that has changed the most in the last four years has been your, the stuff that is this negotiation stuff and not necessarily the um, film direction? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if my art's gotten better. I don't. I mean, I, from my perspective, commercially, I've, you know, I've hit a bit of a lull. You know, it's not like... You think so? Well, I mean, it's, it's here and there it's gotten better, but I... I mean, I, I, I really Well, God like bless it. you, but I love you for that. You're, you're always, I really like it. Uh, thank you. But, it, um, you know, I, for me, the, uh, this idea, this upward mobility and this, this idea of becoming better, I, I you know, it's... Um, the idea of mastery. I, I think hmm. as you grow older and you become adult, like that idea really evolves and opens up, you know, how's it going for you? Well, I think, you know, I think as a human being, you know, as a human being, I'm getting better, you know, Yeah. <laughs> my art and my work and things that I'm trying to develop. Like I'm excited because I can see that like, mm those things are changing and I'm being challenged beyond, you know, my consciousness, which is a beautiful feeling, but, um, I'm not static, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not hanging out feeling, feeling totally content. And I, and that to me is, is evolution. You know, it's like I'm in places and with, and in collaborations where I'm, I'm in an, in over my head a little bit. And, um, that's a, having a healthy amount of that seems like a very good thing. I mean, it's the only way I know that I'm evolving. Yeah. If I get to a place where like, I'm really like, ah, well, like things are going really great. And yeah. I've mastered this and I'm good at this and people like what I, for me, I know it's a sign of, yeah. Of a kind of stasis, you know? Yeah. Well, it is kind of interesting because one of the questions that I had written down was that, to have this exact discussion where you were talking about, you know, I can be a yes man to people and then everyone would have liked working with me, but at a certain point that's going to have a real loss on returns because I'm not going to end up making anything of of note. And it's really that, um, it's that internal negotiation with yourself about what you're going to allow and what you're not going to allow. But it's, all, but it's also come from my marriage. It's like... Mm -hmm. I, well, I was going to say the family seems to be a big part of why... You're saying like I'm happy with myself as a human being, or even my friends. It's like how many of us, you know, our our needs aren't being met, or like we're not communicating like our expectations. Like, and you just go into like autopilot, and you just go into this kind of passive state in these relationships, you know. And you realize, like, especially if you go into marital therapy or or, or marital counseling, where you have mediation, the the psychologist or the therapist will always will always draw out the conflict and push you into the conflict because in the conflict is where the truth is. Mm. Right. And so I think if we're conflict avoidant, if we don't know how to do conflict in a healthy way, mm. that's where I think there's a lot of destruction. And if you can learn conflict in a way, being in a disagreeable state with someone else and still negotiating those differences, I think that's where, that's where intimacy comes from. That's where, deeper relationship comes from and i i really believe that's where better art comes from mm -hmm. you know so because all all of this is conflict you know director agency client yeah that's a bunch of people with different opposing ideas even though they're saying they're all aligned it's absolutely not the truth mm -hmm. and you're entering into a realm and you either know the art of negotiation or you don't 
or you're throwing a hissy fit and yeah. you're going passive aggressive and you're trying to punish people for mm -hmm. not listening to you. Or then you, you know, you're, you're trying to rip the project away from them and steal it from them so they don't, you know, it's like it gets messy. Yeah. You know? No, very much so. Um, I'm curious because I think through talking with you that the, in part with this growth, the mentorship that you do for people is another facet of your um, life. And I think you get a lot out of it. Sure. Uh, and I'm just, why, why do you do it? And what are your, what are your, what are your hopes in doing it for people? I've always wanted to be a father, you know, I love being a father to my son. Um, but more than anything, I think when I was 23 and I got sober and I got in touch with the, the bigger despair, what we would call in, in the rooms of recovery, a spiritual malady. It was the state of being absolutely self-consumed, mm. being totally inward all the time. You know, it is as an artist or as an intellect or as, you know, someone that has learned some coping me mechanism to deal with life's pain and suffering. I learned how to like go inside and hide there and, and be with that, you know, and, and it's the reason I drank and used and it's like, you know, it's part of the disease. And so as a counteraction, as a young man, you know, in recovery, I, I learned that the way through life and the way through life in a way that actually brings deeper fulfillment is, is helping, helping someone that is either suffering or struggling with the same stuff you're going through. The 12th step is like, like you don't just get enlightenment and then you're done. Right. You get drunk again. If that's, if that's, if your objective is to like sit in the back of the church, let's say you're evangelical and just consume what the sage on the stage has to, has to say, so you can get all the right answers into you and then go out and live a more fulfilled life. You're going to eventually end up in total despair because it just doesn't work that way. So like in the rooms of recovery, like if you want to stay sober, you have to give it away. If you want to live a life where you're actually fulfilled and, um, and you're still on fire and you're passionate, like you have to find the next person in line and invest. Mm -hmm. And so I learned that as a praxis, as a, as a method of being human. And I think like, it's just part of the way I work now. Like if I see someone within arm's reach or someone's coming across my path and they're needing help, um, it's just naturally what I'm inclined to do because I know the fruit of that is just tenfold. What are you finding that a lot of like young, um, you know, very talented, there's a lot that you, they have great potential. What are you finding there, the common, like, challenges are or, or mental states are that that they're coming to you for you know I this could open up a Pandora's box about about the time we're living in you know and I do not want to get on to the like the entitled entitled millennial tip mm -hmm. but but I will say what seems to be helpful when I'm when I'm helping younger um individuals who are trying to launch you know they're right out of college they have a head filled with with beautiful ideas and answers is really the like the most and it's maybe because i'm i'm a little more eastern in my philosophical or religious um alignment is is the mr miyagi metaphor you know like daniel's son wants to fight he's got it in him He's got it in him. You know what I'm saying? Like he wants to fight and he knows he's ready and he's had a little bit of victory already. He's tasted it. He's mm -hmm. tasted it. Like if you're coming to the table and you want to fight Mr. Miyagi. And I hope, I you know, I always hope like some of the youngsters have seen the movie. Most of them haven't. Oh God, that's a shame. But Mr. Miyagi, if you're, if you're asking Mr. Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi is going to ask you to paint his fence and wash his car not because he's being a bad father or he's being old school or because you know it's just the way things are done because he knows that you have to develop the resilience 
and the the ability to suffer rightly for extended periods of time before you can touch the bigger stuff you know you have to develop this kind of grit or resilience so that you can do it for a longer period of time and um you know it's funny it's like i just think we're in a time where like there's so much uh stimuli that's available it's like you can be instagram famous you know you get 15,000 followers because of you know a photo session you did with Kanye West and and then in, in your in your early 20s and you just assume that that's the moment when like momentum should pick up and you should have at least 10 years ahead of you where you get to keep doing that and for those that like don't experience that they're in total despair they're like i haven't worked in a year but i had this thing that happened a year ago like i don't understand why it's not happening and um you know i don't i don't my i don't want to share with you the kind of advice i've given but mine is usually much more pragmatic and sometimes a little more brutal you know because it's like well yeah it's not sugar-coated it's like dude it's like and it's not like the old man's story walking through the snow it's but it's like you know this stuff is like it's hard it's hard and like i did my i spent my 20s doing so many projects i didn't want to do because i was wanting to make capital money Mm -hmm. so that i could have a large financial savings at some point so that i could like explore art on my own yeah like you know what i'm saying like there's there's like hard truth that um i think is it becomes it, it's it's it becomes helpful for a lot of these individuals that are asking for help because i don't think there's the culture really like explains it that way it's going to be hard yeah like it's going to be really hard find maybe a job on the side right now while you're developing these ideas that you love that pays your bills sorry like you have to work but like how about this place down the street they're hiring and i know it's not in the lane that you want to drive in but like you have to work to make money right now that's practical so like get the job there and keep writing your screenplay until there's some kind of intersection yeah I got to believe that doing this type of stuff and and then thinking about what any one individual is going through and extolling advice is just also so beneficial for your own um, mind and like how you're viewing things, right? I mean, yeah, I think so. I I mean, you give it away, you know, it's like, uh, I think a lot of a lot of the way it works, you just keep affirming what is true as you teach, you know, yeah, it's a it's a way to like keep truth closer yeah because yeah. i mean it's not like these things are going to be any um different for you it's just, no. it's just further down the road because i was really interested in what you had mentioned before about you were like 20 to 30 percent into a documentary and you had some sort of revelation about <laughs> what you were pursuing can you talk about that at all I'm, do I'm, you want the revelation or do you want like the despair that came after like i'm looking for both because <laughs> <laughs> i'm curious about that because 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 obviously you're giving this advice to to people who are in 20, 25 years old, right? And, I, you know, those things are relative to that age and that level of experience. Um, and But then it's helpful for you, I'm sure, because also you're still going through things. And this is a great, I think, example, because that doesn't sound easy. I mean, throughout time, I've, I've financed the majority of my own work. Okay. Right? So if I want to explore something, I don't expect a handout from anybody. Right. I'm, I'm bringing my own capital. Yeah. I've learned that from some of my mentors. Sometimes I get I get lucky with someone else that's willing to put in on it. Yeah. But most often, like, I'm paying I'm paying for it. Yeah. And yeah, I was after I was after this uh, documentary about the the oh god a post Christian America, the death of American exceptionalism. You know, it was called Numb, mm. and. It was super ideological. Yeah. I'd read so many books. I'd done a year of research. I had this one gentleman that was absolutely, I mean, he was a scholar beyond a scholar. And he was, uh, he had predicted, you know, the collapse of America, like the collapse of Rome. I mean, I had it outlined. It was masterful. (laughs) 
it was anti-capitalism. It was anti, you know, it was very kind of Marxist in its orientation. And I was off and running and we were filming and shooting and I did an interview in Cincinnati. And here was this, uh, this big, huge, empty, vacant mall, mm-hmm. big, vacant mall, you know, the commodification of all things, including our human lives, you know, and uh, we were pushing through the mall with a camera, steady cam, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I was so excited. And there's these big, huge, obese people that were in the dark walking the mall. And I thought, there it is. There it is. The obese Americans, you know. Yeah. Fat and on the delusional sort of promise of prosperity and materialism. And I was having the, the, the Steadicam op like film them. We got their releases. Their young kid was playing on the jungle gym inside this like vacant ghosted mall. Wow. I was so excited. I thought, God, here it is. Here, here is my film emerging, you know? Yeah. And the, and the gentleman, the father, said, hey, would you mind if I said a few things to the camera? I said, of course, of course. You know, what could he say, this dumb American, you know, inside of a mall? So we gave him the camera, gave him the mic. He said, I just want to thank you so much for, like, highlighting my son, filming my son, because, you know, he has autism, and it's really hard for him to play outside because he runs into the street a lot, you know, and we get to bring him in here and the, the mall, the owner of the mall, even though it's vacant, they allow us to come in here and use the jungle gym so he can play at night after we get off work. Hmm. And I was like, Oh my God. Wow. And I said, uh, well, what are you guys doing? I see you walking around the mall. Like, are you exercising? You know, still trying to find some, he said, no, it's our prayer walk. We do it as a family. We're praying for America. And we just do laps around the mall and we just pray for America right now. He said that? He said that. He said we're praying for America. We're praying for America. And, you know, my... It's like sometimes there are these moments in life when you have this ideological impetus, you know, that you know that you know that you know what is true. Theoretically, theologically, ideologically. And then the I don't know what you'd call it it's like life on life's terms hits you in the guts you know and you're like oh you know oh yeah that's it yeah like wait a second maybe I'm totally wrong so (laughs) obviously that's a really incredible experience but I don't know if it necessarily has to negate your entire thesis for the it did it did did. it did because i'll tell you what i realized why do you you think it did because my documentary thirst in that in that lane thematically was absolutely ideological Mm. and uh, the turning point in my life that happened at that moment by the way it wasn't just a, a filmic experience a toppling kind of like career experience it was like oh my god i've become an ideologue I have forgotten the complexity and nuances of the human experience and I need to get back to like that complexity because in my my feverish longing to want to explain big things mm. in intellectual ways yeah I am no longer understanding the human condition you know and you got it, like academically removed it just every book on my bookshelf suddenly became in vain it was like I don't know how to explain. Maybe you've experienced this before, but it was like you build this totalizing worldview based on, you know, this intellectual pursuit about the way things work, you know, and then you're totally disproven because you meet something in the, the real thoroughfare of day-to-day living, you know, it's like suddenly, you know, you're a fascist, right wing or let's let's make it even like let's make it even uh, more perplexing you're a left wing you know ideologue who hates absolutely hates right wing christian you know middle of the country white folk mm-hmm. and then suddenly you're in a car accident you know in california after your yoga class 
and you know you're bleeding out and like this right-wing fascist republican voting christian like comes to your aid and like ties off your legs so you don't bleed out and like saves your life that does something to you you know what i'm talking about like sure it's it's like <laughs> a reminder of the nuance of things yeah it's like you know it's yeah i mean and then you're 20 to 30 percent into something and you stop yeah and a lot of what you're doing for the in the commercial realm is to support your family but also to support your personal art right. and then you just had i guess do you view it as a failed project or is it not failure because it, there was a lot to take from it that just not a final film result no i mean i think i've learned this from my mentors you know like my my work whether i'm screenwriting or i'm developing something or i'm exploring it's always exploration and it's usually exploration for the sake of of transformation you know like if like if any film for me or piece of art is not to de develop some kind of um stabilized like truism it's to like jump into something because i'm not really sure about it right. and come out the other side changed sometimes i end up with a product that i can actually like put out into the world but most often like the screenplay I just spent two years writing, which I'm, I'm going to have to actually let go of now. Oh, really? Yeah, because the same thing happened. I like bumped into something and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, no, like I'm, there it is. And, and guess what? Like it was not in vain. It was not in vain because, oh my God, I finally like got to it and no one will ever see it. Well, many people read it, but like, yeah suddenly the the feedback came and the thing was learned and i thought oh my god you know like okay there it is it's done but so like be because you got the transformation you were hoping to get out of the experience it's it, it becomes easier to let go that you weren't that you couldn't that you didn't make the actual product that was the Somewhat point. It's just it's just the way I've always looked at at, at making art. Mm -hmm. It's it's never held this like, in my, at least in my experience, it's for me it's never held this like um, essential concretized necessity. Uh, it's never it's never held great weight mm -hmm. like the final product for me. The journey is the thing. It always has been since I was a young man. Like people would be like, oh, we want to frame this and put this up somewhere. You, I said, like, yeah, I don't want to look at it ever again. Like <laughs> that was like two weeks ago. Like, let me just keep moving. Mm -hmm. I want to keep drawing. Like, let me just keep, like, let me flip the page. I want to, I want to throw that sketchbook away. Let me just keep drawing. You know, I, I've just been mad that way that I just want to keep exploring and searching. And it, I've been so fortunate that through that exploration, so many of those pieces have manifested as objects that have been concretized that have somehow yeah. made them their way into culture yeah and people have been like oh my gosh right that moved me i relate to that you know yeah but i don't i don't want to get i don't want to get hung up on any of those pieces you know i don't look at my my own work at all ever i, I just want to keep you know yeah well to to end on i feel like you touched on it earlier but i just to to hear your take on it in terms of now um, how you're defining success based on all of these things? Success. Some days success is just making it through the day. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes success is putting food on the table for my family. Sure. It changes, but if I make it to the end of this life um, sober, mm. clear headed, knowing that I spoke honestly and, you know, and did my best to, to serve others with everything I had in me, you know, I think, I think that'll be success. Cool. I think so. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, I, you know, um, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since we, uh, talked about doing it and, um, you know, I, I know, I know that the, the muse didn't visit me on this one, so maybe it won't be as successful. And I have to stand would in have to disagree. <laughs> um, I think yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, another time down the road when we get to do it again. I know a lot of people have, uh, like I said at the beginning, have, have really enjoy um, hearing your thoughts on things. 
And so I'm just uh, I'm thankful that uh, we were able to do it and that you were uh, presenting your, your, your thoughts the way you do. Thank you for always giving me time to process these things um, publicly. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> All right, thanks.